We Believe series, and we're going to study Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. You might have noticed if you were here last week that we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And we looked at the second half of that teaching before the first half, so we could understand to a more full degree what we mean by being the unified body of Jesus. And so over these next weeks, we're going to continue to look at what we believe about the church, what we believe about the people of God on earth. And what is needed for us as a church, and keep in mind, the church is not a generic name like restoration. Uh, The church is not a building like the one that we meet in. The church is actually the people. So the church meets in a building, and the church might have a name like restoration. But when we refer to the word church in the past, present, and certainly in these weeks that come, what we are referring to is the collective body of Christ, us. So we can't just apply these truths to the body at large. The body at large is actually us individually. And us individually, we make up the corporate body. Those two things are are intimately woven together. And so we're talking about what is needed for a church to flourish in a way that honors God and blesses people. And what that also means is how do we flourish in a way where we honor God and bless people. And in these verses, Paul pointedly describes what God desires the people of his church to be and what his expectations of us are in the church family. He certainly doesn't lay them all out, but he lays some important ones, some foundational ones, the first of which we looked at last week. God desires us all to be one in him. We are now unified because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Those of us who are in Jesus have the spirit in us, and we are now one faith. We have one hope. We have one calling. That word one was used seven times. We talked about that last week. God is really driving home the point that while we are individually in Jesus, we are also one people, past, present, and future, the men and women who have chosen to follow Jesus. And that's what's really great about this little section of the book of Ephesians. It takes so many of the things we have already studied in this series, a lengthy list of We Believe teachings, And it deeply marries them to our everyday lives. All of this stuff that we claim to believe about Jesus is meant to have a real-world application in our lives. Last week, we studied verses 3 through 6, and in them we learned the main way. One of the main ways that we value and build God's church family on earth is when we learn to value each other, when we learn to love each other. We care for each other in the same way Jesus has cared for us, in imperfect and broken ways nonetheless but we do attempt to love each other with the same sort of love, care, and grace that Jesus showed us. Today we're going to add another layer to that truth. As Paul tells us that when a church family does treasure each other like that, which I really believe this one does, anytime I have a teaching like this that begins to talk about relational expectations, I want to point out, and I would point out, I guess, if it was to the contrary, that I'm I'm not teaching this this week because this is a problem in our church. One of the things I think that makes our church our church is the kind of selfless, sacrificial relationships that are here. It's truly amazing. So I'm not saying this in an offhanded way to get us to think about something we're not doing. I really want us to think about the fact that God has given us something very beautiful here. We want to value that, cherish that, and certainly encourage it to grow. I want us to be mindful of how valuable this heart attitude of valuing one another is. And frankly, as Paul tells us, how important it is for us to be willing to protect it. And so this leads me to the only we believe truth that I want to share with you today. We believe the church is a place where we must guard the unity God has given us. We talked about last week, the unity God has given us in Jesus. Here, Paul tells us that this is something we must protect, we must guard. And I want to reread a section of what was just read to us, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep 
And I put in quotes here, or guard. That's the idea behind this. The unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now remember, this verse in Ephesians, this book of Ephesians, is being written to a church at Ephesus. So this is a group of people, just like us, at a different time in history, a couple of thousand years ago, whom Paul is writing about very important things to. And this section of teaching is talking about how they understand who they are in Jesus and how that is supposed to shape who they are with each other. And the first thing I want to say this morning is that it's worth noting, even though Jesus prayed for his church to be unified, that's what we discussed last week, Paul here tells us that you and I must guard this prayer. We must guard this unity. Last week, we spoke about at length Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he asked God to make us a people who were known for the way that we experienced the love of Jesus and showed it to each other. That was his prayer. It was one of the last things he prayed for us on earth, that we would be, God's people would be so saturated in the goodness and the kindness and the grace and the mercy and the truth and the justice of God, that we would actually be the kind of people that sort of oozed this stuff wherever we went, that people would see in us something that is not of us, this unified understanding of Christ in us. There is a whole teaching on that, what we're talking about at least in brief here. So I'm not going to revisit that truth today. You can listen to that online. This morning, I want to look at Paul's command where he tells us that that type of unity that God has given us through his spirit is not only something worth cherishing and striving for, it is also something that must be protected. And the reason we're told to guard this type of relational unity in the church family is because this kind of selfless, truly, I mean no exaggeration when I say this, this kind of selfless, heavenly love that the Bible is speaking about here in Ephesians, it can be very hard to come by. And when we do have it, when a church does sort of have it in its DNA, it can be very difficult to keep. And there's one primary reason for this. The human heart, which we deeply believe is sort of the epicenter of life. It's the, when the Bible speaks about the human heart, it talks about it being like our control center. Out of the heart comes our decisions, our thoughts, our priorities. The reason why this value is so important to have and protect is because the human heart, when it's left unchecked, is almost always inclined to preserve itself at the expense of others. The attitude in our world we call selfishness. The default posture of most people's heart is not to serve others at the expense of self. I'm not saying that that is everybody in the world, but I am saying in our lives it's very common to sometimes for malevolent reasons, but I think for a lot of us, just for really benevolent reasons, we are more concerned with ourselves than we are for other people. In other words, the unredeemed language of the human heart is simply take care of me at all costs. That's the language it attempts to speak to us. And when Jesus comes into our lives, that language not only has to change, but the evidence of Jesus in us is that it will change. And so at the outset of this, I just want to say that both logically and theologically speaking, you and I cannot guard the unity of Jesus' church, plural, if our heart is solely committed to preserving ourselves, singular. Those two heart attitudes cannot coincide with each other. One will win, and most likely the one that does win, if it's not fueled by the grace of Christ, is selfishness. And this is why Jesus prayed for our unity in John 17. I don't think that was a fluke or he didn't have anything else to pray for. He knew this would be one of the most important and difficult things for the people of God to have, cherish, and dwell in. And what's interesting here is when we look at that, that root command in John, Paul uses very urgent language here to describe our role in guarding it. It's as if Paul knows that this is difficult, and he's trying to exhort us in a way that helps us to realize that. And so in verse 3, he tells us to guard, to, to make every effort to guard this unity of the Spirit that has been put in us by Jesus. He's literally telling us we are to spare no effort. 
when it comes to what we do to guard God's unity in our own hearts and in our church family, in the way that we conduct ourselves in the world, and the way that we honor and serve His mission in the world. And that our effort in this area never ends. It's one of these things that you cannot let your guard down with. Sort of like a stack of gold bars in your living room. That is such a precious commodity in the world. It's so valuable that it would require a diligent, continuous guarding. You can never keep, take your eyes off of it because of the significance of it. What he's saying here is that when you think of your life and your identity in God's church family, one of the key responsibilities you and I have to this family and the church at large globally, meaning the church gathers in singular places all around the globe, but we are also part of a much larger body, which is what we spoke about last week, the past, present, and future people of Jesus, those who will follow him. One of our responsibilities is to cherish that family. It's to be an agent of God's peace when we speak to our brothers and sisters in Christ and when we labor for his mission in our world. And we do this by promoting Christ's love and protecting against those who might threaten his love and unity, whether it's in this room or outside of this room. The scripture is emphatic not just here, but in multiple places, that there is nothing passive about guarding the unity of his spirit in the church. That if we're to keep it for every day of our lives and with every fiber of our being, our will, our physical strength, our heart, our mind, our reasoning faculties, everything should be shaped by these commands. Our whole person must be committed to reflecting an image of God in this area that honors God, unified people of God. And this is so serious that in multiple places, the Bible gives us a, a crystal clear picture of what it looks like to walk worthy of this high calling in our everyday lives. Paul gives us one very particular one here in Ephesians 4.1. He uses this word calling, which we'll talk about for a couple of minutes. The word calling in Ephesians 1 isn't talking about a vocational call into the ministry. And that is very common, how we sort of understand that word in the Bible. When we think of the word call, we tend to think of things like elders or pastors, uh, people who run a student ministry, folks who are leading churches. That certainly is included in this, but this is not the primary way that this word is being used here. The word calling is talking about what a person's life looks like when they are called out of the unbelieving world and into the church family. And the church family is the expression of the people of God. So this calling that Paul is talking about here is when the voice of Jesus speaks so loudly to you that you respond and you decide to move away from unbelief and into belief. And when you become a believer, whether you attend a church or not, you are part of the church, past, present, and future. You are immediately, according to the scripture, grafted into that body. We congregate in local places. But God's church, past, present, and future, is not limited by a name or a building. That's why I think it's interesting that so many people today often want to be a part of that church. They want to be a part of the, the spirituality or the unity of Jesus, but they have no value for the actual people of God. And that is a challenge. That's a problem because we cannot fully grow in the grace of Jesus without each other. We are in this together. A church is considered a family. Many metaphors in the Bible that describe it as sort of like a family, a group of people who are laboring towards the same cause in their life. They are all trying to grow in the grace of Jesus. We are better with each other. And what's important to know here is that this is sort of like the essential character qualities in the life of somebody following Jesus. This idea of calling is talking about this. It's talking about a set of Christ-honoring heart attitudes required to be a receiving and contributing member of God's family. And having these attitudes of love and spirit-led unity I want to say something here about spirit-led unity. When you hear me say the word unity, I do not mean that that is some homogenous, 
like blind authoritarian reality in Christianity. I'm not saying unity means every single person looks the same way and acts the same way and has the same priorities. That is not what unity means in the Bible. In fact, when you read unity in the book of Ephesians, lots of scholars write about this as being a unity in our diversity, simply meaning we are unified in the grace of Jesus. But we are all very different. Our life stories, our backgrounds, our gender, our ethnicity, everything about us is very different. We all have different stories of what brought us to this place. There is immeasurable diversity in God's people. And it should be that way because God has created us like this. But what should overcome that diversity is our unified love for Jesus, which shapes a unified love for each other. And so don't hear me using unity in an abusive way. I'm using unity from the angle of we recognize we are all something, but we are all now one in Jesus. And that one in Jesus ultimately defines everything we are on earth. And that is why this spirit-led unity in your heart and mind is crucial to preserving the health of any church and according to Jesus' prayer, which we looked at last week, in helping people find Christ. Our love for each other is one of the main things God desires to use to help other people see and sense his love in their lives. And I, I want to share an example with you of how high the stakes of this are when it comes to how we carry ourselves with people who are far from God. People who who might be wonderful and great people, but they just do not cherish Jesus in the way the scripture calls them to. And so many years ago, you know, over the years, I've had probably 15 people that have cut my hair. There tends to be a lot of turnover in that industry for some reason. So I've had a lot of folks that have cut my hair. That's just a natural thing that we have to have done in life unless, you know, you want a big mop on your head. And so many years ago, I had a, a young lady who cut my hair and she cut my hair for about two and a half years before she moved. And this was interesting because the, the barber's chair or wherever you get your hair cut, that's a great place for you to talk to people. You know, you need to be kind because they have a sharp instrument that they're using an eighth of an inch away from your head. But I find that that's a captive environment where if you're just generally kind to people, you can actually have really great conversations about all kinds of things. And you're in that chair repeatedly. So you get to know people. That's sort of what happened here. I got to know this young lady who had said, when she found that I was a pastor over some time, that she was a professing atheist. She didn't believe in God at all. And over the course of those years, during our, our conversations, we talked about a lot of things, faith obviously included. And the more we talked, the more I realized that this person was not an atheist. She was an actual agnostic. Now, just in case you don't know what the difference is here, I'll explain. An atheist believes that there is no God at all. They think the idea of this is ridiculous and there is really no chance or possibility at all that there is a God out there. That's a, a simple but a very, very good understanding of atheism. While an agnostic thinks very differently, they are actually open to the idea of there being a God. They actually say there really could be one. But for whatever reason, and they're usually myriad the reasons, they have chosen for some reason or multiple reasons to not believe in a God at all. In our chats, I began probing to see what the issue with Christianity was, what the issue with Jesus was. And more often than not, when we talk to people, especially in our modern world, when we talk to people about what their issues with Christianity are, some of them will say things like, well, I have a hard time believing in like the miracles of Jesus. All these things we're getting ready to celebrate in a couple of weeks, which we think are foundational to our faith, some people look at them and think it's ridiculous. They think that the idea of a resurrection, of somebody coming back from the dead, is just stupid that that has never happened in history, and that is the reason why they shouldn't believe that there is ever a chance that it did happen in history. Some people will say, well, you know, this guy, Jesus, he was a really great guy, but man, the way he wants me to live, that's just beyond my reach. 
I can't be that kind to people. I can't be that generous to people. I can't be that selfless to people. Whatever it is, there are usually all sorts of reasons for why people don't believe. And if I may boldly say, if somebody is willing to have a conversation with you, there's usually some really good responses to those objections. And when I say good responses, I don't mean they're like one-liners that can cause somebody to believe. I just mean there's a conversation to be had about some of these things. When we know the truth of God enough and value our neighbor enough to actually connect those dots. What was interesting about this situation is that I didn't have a chance to talk about any of them. There was no major theological issue with Christianity. It wasn't the fact that this guy named Jesus could actually you know, be crucified and come back to life, resurrect themselves, himself, and actually offer us forgiveness on the cross for sin. These were not the issues she had with religion or in particular the Christian faith. What she told me was interesting. She said she really couldn't think about believing in Jesus because at one point in her life, she had had a pretty traumatic experience with somebody who claimed to be a Christian. And this is an interesting thing. In some senses, it's, it's sort of, it's so trivial what this argument was about, but it actually shaped a really significant wound in her heart. And she told me that she had a ton of tattoos on her body, on her arms, you could see them. And that at one point in her life, she had talked to people, a handful of them that professed Christianity, and they immediately began writing her about the fact that she had tattoos. And she went on to say, as she was listening to these folks, that I thought if they have an issue with the stuff that's on my arm, what are they going to think about the rest of my life when they find out what it is? And out of that conversation, she developed a, an understanding of Christianity. Now, that was very painful for me to hear, and my heart sunk a little bit when I did. The folks she had spoken to, it's sort of an interesting problem here. It's one representative example of a bigger issue that we can often have when our minds are not focused on the actual way Jesus conducted himself in the world. The folks she spoke to had chosen to argue with her about a minor issue. What they brought, what they thought about her tattoos over the major reality of Jesus. This was their beginning point with her. And so I did my best in the limited amount of time that we had to speak to her heart before we spoke about anything else regarding that matter. And that's important to know. When you deal with somebody who's been hurt, you have to start there. You can't start with responding to stuff. You have to start with actually addressing the fact that somebody is grieving for whatever reason that is. And I want to say here, thankfully, we don't have these narratives in our body. But for us here, there are some things we can learn from an experience like this when it comes to displaying Jesus' love. There are many things I can say here, but there are just two big ones I want to point out. The first is that it's really important that you, you empathize here, that you recognize when somebody has been maybe given a, a misrepresented understanding or a misrepresented impression of Christianity. When you speak to a person like that who's been hurt, it's worth affirming the hurt when it's very legitimate. In other words, be a human, care for a person. But I also think it's worth pointing out that that behavior in and of itself is not enough to, to, to remove from your mind or heart any possibility of pursuing Jesus. It is very worth, it's worth gently pointing out that that type of behavior, what we would probably call here a judgment, judgment or hard legalism, this is a behavior that is not limited to just somebody who might be a Christian. And there are many Christians who don't have this attitude in them at all because they understand that if they want... If they want to sort of live believing that the law of God is why God loves them, their ability to keep it, well, if you read the Bible, you'll know that there is a really difficult problem with that. We cannot keep the law of God. This is why Jesus dies for us. So the legalist, the person who is very comfortable with sort of doling out judgment and whatever they care about that day, this is a person who deeply misunderstands the gospel of Jesus. And what I try to point out is that this attitude is somewhat human. 
It can be found everywhere. And I joke when I say this, but it's also very serious. If, if you think this type of attitude isn't prevalent in our culture today, just scroll through Twitter today when you leave the church. Some of you are doing it right now because you checked out of my, my message five minutes ago. So if you're doing it now, my point is proven. Focus up on me again. You can just see this is an attitude that really drives the way people think. So you want to level the ground there, but you want to make sure that you address the human hurt. And secondly, it's worth pointing out, this is where I think we need to be mindful of this, that people who treat others like this, they should be mindful of the way they treat people when it is like that, because that attitude is often an evidence of somebody who really deeply, significantly misunderstands what grace is. It often reveals a self-perceived attitude of superiority, moral superiority here in an issue that's really not even an issue. One very similar to the attitude that the Pharisees got in trouble with with Jesus a lot. That's sort of the essence of what Phariseeism is in the New Testament. They take at times the most mundane of things and they elevate them to be the most important things. And as a result, they take what can be a very difficult decision for some people, believing and following Jesus with your whole life. They take what is an already challenging decision and they make it impossible because they layer all this stuff on it that actually begins to display an image of love and unity that is incorrect. An attitude, think about this, this is an attitude that God himself did not show us in Christ. It represents an attitude of spiritual superiority that flies in the face of the humble and the gentle heart attitude that Paul calls us to in verse 2. In other words, as Christians, we should not think that God has given us a truth stick to walk around the world with beating people with. And I say again, this is not an attitude we have in our body, and I'm thankful for it. We just want to make sure that it never becomes an attitude here. Proud, argumentative attitudes like that usually know no boundaries. They are equally applied to people who are far from Jesus and people who love Jesus. And so you see, if you, you want to guard the unity of God's Spirit in our body, in the body of Christ, while helping people understand G Jesus, who are very far from God, then you have to know something very simple. This is the driving idea of what Paul communicates to us in these verses. God calls us to live in the high calling of lowliness with each other. That's the oxymoron that Paul is explaining here. He's talking about this very high calling of knowing Christ. And he immediately says that the evidence of that high calling in our lives is when there is a lowliness, especially in the way we treat each other. This is one of the great ironies of the Christian faith. Think about this. The supreme God of everything has said one of the greatest evidences that you and I truly know and follow him. It isn't when we believe that we are better than others who are far from him or maybe just behind us and their progress on the road to following Jesus. He said the greatest evidence that we know the supreme God of the universe, it isn't arrogance. It is when we become humble. It is when we are defined by empathy, by patience, by love, by care for our neighbor. Not a heavy-handed religion or an arrogant spirituality. Paul explicitly said this earlier in Ephesians. When he prayed, this is the first chapter of Ephesians, he prayed that God's people would be rooted in the power of Christ's love. He literally says there is power in love, in the type of love Jesus shows the world on the cross. And that prayer also contains a great irony, because right after his prayer, he tells us how having this power in Christ is supposed to lead to a lowliness of heart and mind in those who receive it. This great power fuels humility. That's what he says. Scripture repeatedly teaches us that the fruit of Jesus' power in our lives is not that we become spiritual giants, dominating and subduing the people in our lives we believe to be less than us, for whatever reason that is. Rather, it leads us to this lowly but God-honoring place where we become humble in our hearts, gentle in the way we treat people, patient with those who are different from us, and even disagree with us. 
all for the sake of helping others live in and find Jesus' love. Now, if you're like me, what I just said was probably a little bit abrasive. If you don't like what the word lowliness communicates when it comes to your life, you're going to be in good company. The word lowly is not something, it's not a superlative that we want when we graduate high school or college. They're not like Anthony Orzo, lowliest guy on earth. You don't celebrate that when you're in school, right? This is not a word that we cherish or value in our world. Because no person in their right mind at first glance ever likes the sound of that word when it is applied to their lives. Lowliness was as despised in the ancient world as it is in our modern world. And the idea of lowliness, gentleness, or humility, it's always, not always, but it is often equated with weakness. Give you an example of this. In Paul's world, Paul's world is a Roman world. And this behavior was equated to pure weakness. The Roman world functions on strength and authority. They, their basic motto is, we will subdue you, we will come in, and if you don't agree to our terms, we will decimate you militarily, and then we will make you submit to our terms. So authority and power is what rules the day in the first century world. And it's very true in our modern world. And to give you an example, a very pointed one from Paul's world, years ago, in a personal study, I came across this image of a Roman soldier's sandal. It was a historical picture of this sandal. And it had an imprinted image of what looked like a man praying on his knees on the sole of the sandal. And the part that actually hit the ground, you know, that you walk on. The image fascinated me. Most of you know I'm a really big history buff. And so I thought, hey, this is, this is interesting. Maybe this has to do something with like the prayer life of Roman soldiers when they were going off to war, which was pretty much always. The Roman Empire was always at war with something or somebody. And so I did some research and a lot of biblical commentaries on this because there's a, there's a, a place in Ephesians where Paul talks about these, the, you know, the shoes or the sandals of peace. And it was interesting that these sandals had people praying on them. So I looked some stuff up and I found out that this was actually commonly done by Roman soldiers. In the same way, like a modern soldier might have a tattoo of their unit put on their arm. It was meant to display something, to communicate something, often to the other people that were in service with them. And to my surprise, I learned the person on their knees had nothing to do with prayer. It actually represented the merciless take no prisoners philosophy that the Romans had when they went to war. In other words, after the peace terms, if you disagreed, then there was war. There was no getting around it. And the image symbolized that this was a person who was on their knees begging for mercy. And folks who got on their knees and begged to be spared were deemed worthy of being on the bottom of their sandal, crushed and walked over. At that point, there was no surrender. They were going to dominate. And this is the driving idea, one of them anyways, that has fueled the modern world. And when we look at our modern world, it's very similar. This is why people like Pontius Pilate had a hard time believing Jesus was really a king. In a Roman's mind, a king was clothed in glory and arrayed in power. He was not powerless or merciful. He certainly did not hang on a cross. Much of our modern culture sees these virtues of gentleness as, as, a, as a bit of a weakness. For example, when you watch television shows about business, it's very popular in our world today. You know, you watch shows like Shark Tank, not Minnow Tank. The idea is that you've got to have a killer attitude to, to dominate the globe and make money. Go look on social media today. You see people posting things like hashtag crushing it. Never things like hashtag humility life or hashtag lowly. When you're in school, they tell you to conquer the world and achieve your, achieve your dreams, right? None of these things are necessarily bad. I'm not trying to discourage you from making the world a better place or, or achieving your dreams. I'm just trying to say if we're not careful, these sort of cultural slogans can lead us to a way of living where we believe we are the most important thing in life. We are the only thing that matters. Our lives and our dreams. 
And that doesn't usually happen overnight for people. It usually happens subtly, subtly, subliminally over time. And the attitude that often comes out of this person is one that, that has no problem sort of devaluing other people. That attitude can often come at the expense of other people who forget those other people, whomever it is you are stepping over or climbing over or treating poorly, they also matter in God's eyes in the same way we do. And that's why the story of the cross, this wonderful season where we look to the cross of Jesus, matters. Because the scripture tells a different story through Jesus' life. Jesus shows the world. He puts his life where these teachings are. He shows the world that there is an incredible power in humility. He leads by example, and he becomes the first one to lay all of that power down for others. The supreme God of the world who walks amongst us ends his journey on this earth, not with a crown on his head. Well, he has a crown on his head. It's just a mockery that the Romans put on him. He ends up on the cross. The one with everything became nothing for us. Living like this is a bit unnatural. And for us, frankly, I want to say as we wrap up, it's going to be near impossible to do it consistently unless you and I ask Jesus to open our eyes to this reality. This is a supernatural reality. And that is why it is so important that we have the presence of God's Spirit in our lives when we try to live it out. Because Jesus has to show us that contrary to whatever cultural belief is out there, whatever thing we might feel like should drive our lives, those who walk with a humble heart, they are really the ones living in their right mind, no matter what anybody else might say. And this is how much of the Christian faith is. Think about this. You know, we're told to do things like love our enemies. We're told to care for our neighbors when it's difficult for us. We're told to love others at times in the book of Philippians, often at the expense of ourselves, to value others at times more as we see other people as more valuable than us. That's what the Bible says. We're told to be generous with the things we tend to be most stingy with. I say it regularly, particularly our time and our money. These are the two power moves of the modern Western world. And God says those are things that need to be used, not just for our own benefit, which is important, but for the benefit of others. Much of Christianity makes little sense at all until Jesus makes it make sense in your heart. When you start looking at these things and you start conversing with Christ about them, he will interject a different perspective. He will bring clarity to attitudes in our heart that might be muddied right now. And that is really when things change in the way we see life. It's when you and I realize that there is nothing weak about lowliness. Rather, there is actual strength in it. That the road to riches in God's economy, it's often found in spiritual poverty. That the meek, the scripture says, it is them, not the power hungry that will inherit the earth. That those who show mercy are the ones who can display it to others because they understand what it means to receive it. In case you're wondering, that is just a partial list of Christ's beatitude, his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And that is a teaching that turned the way the world functioned upside down in the modern world and in today. Or maybe a better way to say this would be it, it started to turn the world right side up again by calling all people back to the way God meant for things to be in the way that we treat each other. And so this morning, let's really pray and labor towards becoming a people who live in and walk worthy of the calling we have in Jesus, the calling to have the last name Christ in our lives. As we close this morning, think about what we've talked about today. Pray and process this this week. As we wrap up, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about his love and his unity within the body of Christ? And certainly, what will you do with that as you leave this place and go into a world where many people are far from Jesus? Pray with me. God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the fact that these things we have spoken about, we began speaking about them last week and continue today, 
all of the things that you are challenging us to be. You first and foremost became these things for us. You proved by example that before you asked us to do anything in this world, that you would first not only do it for us, but empower us to be able to do it faithfully. And so I pray, Lord, today, if we've heard a teaching like this, and it has caused us to think about areas of our hearts, which I pray it did, it is my desire, God, that we would all know that your response to us is not immediate judgment. It is not the hammer. That your desire for us is to see and to sense these things, to draw more close to you, and to grow in these areas of our lives. We know that beyond all of us in this room, our combined desire to be like your son Jesus cannot outdrive your desire for us to be like Jesus. More than anybody on this planet, you want us to become like your son Christ. So we rest in that truth, and we pray, Father, that that truth would define our thoughts and our actions in these remaining moments that we have this morning. Guide our, ma- our minds, God, comfort our hearts, and help us to see and sense you in new ways, in meaningful ways, and in more profound ways this morning. All of this we pray in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.